Hello, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining us today for our conversation about carbon border adjustment mechanisms and carbon pricing. In a few moments, I'm going to introduce our esteemed guests who we're very lucky to have, uh, Shuting Pomerlo. But first, I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about why I'm excited to be here and what it means to me to be here today. Before CCL, I worked in corporate government affairs for a little over four years for a company you might have heard of, uh, the Home Depot Corporation. And in that time, I had the pleasure of working with terrific colleagues and learning a lot about how to be successful in government affairs endeavors. But it lacked a little bit of that passion that got me up and excited every day. Um, there wasn't necessarily an issue that I had a burning passion to work for, work on each and every day. And here, um, I've been able to bring that passion, my passion for the environment, something that dates back to my childhood, to whether it was working with um, agriculture with my grandfather on his property or doing recycling programs at school or stream cleanups in the community to actually bring it to my work each and every day. CTL has empowered me to use that passion in my work, using the skills and tools that I built on something at my previous stop in a career um, that really matters to me. And so I know that that passion, that opportunity to bring that passion to bear and that understanding of how uh, businesses make decisions um, really helps me be effective on when working on an issue like a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And I know that that passion I've had the pleasure of using for two years here at CCL is shared by each and every one of you, our volunteers. I see it in every interaction I have with you. And I know that you're just relying on us to give you the tools and the information you need to really go out there and be successful to use that passion to move the needle. Um, and I'm confident uh, that our guest will help you do that today. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Shuting uh, Pomerlo. She is a research manager of climate policy at the Niskanen Center. Her areas of research include carbon taxation, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, and policies at the intersection of climate and trade. As you might imagine, we at CTL have long relied on her uh, for lots of expert input, uh, given those policy areas she covers. Prior to joining Niskanen, she has previously worked in public policy at the Cato Institute and the American Council on Renewable Energy. Most recently, she has worked as a business strategy consultant. Shooting as an MPP in environmental and energy policy from Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy and a BA in social work from Nanjing University. Uh, Xu Ting, is there anything that I missed that you'd like to add before we dive into our conversation? And thank you again for being with us today. Hi, Kyle. Nice to meet you. And uh, it's great to be here with uh, all the wonderful volunteers of CCL. And I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Well, as you know, uh, after the many interactions you've had with CCL, our volunteers have long been advocating for a carbon border adjustment mechanism, whether that was a standalone policy or part of a package such as the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. But for those who might need a little more information and to kind of set the table for our conversation today, can you outline the basics of a CBAM for our viewers? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think it's very important to keep in mind when we talk about a carbon border adjustment mechanism, we need to talk about it in the context of a domestic carbon tax. Um, a lot of people uh, tend to discuss this policy as a standalone policy, like, can we have a CBAM? Um, when are we going to have a CBAM? Um, so I would emphasize perhaps many times throughout this discussion that it doesn't make sense to have a carbon border adjustment if there is not a domestic carbon price in the United States. 
Um, so I'll talk about what is the carbon border adjustment. So it's um, basically a mechanism that would apply import taxes on imported goods and give export rebates to exported goods. So a paired um, uh, mechanism that would mirror a domestic tax in the United States. Um, so that's the basics. Um, border adjustment is actually not new to a carbon tax. It's been widely used in other types of taxes like excise taxes, like a value added tax. Um, for example, um, more than 150 countries around the world have value added taxes in place and that is always border adjusted. Uh, when you, you know, travel into the European Union, um, you buy something there. If you want to bring it home to the United States, you can get a tax refund at the airport. So that's basically the the rebate part of the VAT. And when you you know purchase something locally in the EU, you will need to pay for the the VAT locally in that country. So that's a border adjustment. Um, in the United States, we don't really have a value added tax but state sales taxes are implemented um, based on the same principle. Um, if you purchase something in Maine, you have to pay the state sales tax there, regardless where the product is produced, um, okay. whether it's produced in Virginia or Ohio. The same goes if something, pair of New Balance shoes are produced in Maine, but sold in Ohio, the customers would have to pay, pay um, the state sales tax uh, of, of Ohio. Um, so the idea is really to tax consumption based on um, where that happens instead of production. Um, that is basically what is a carbon border adjustment in terms of why um, there are two main goals of why we want to do a border adjustment. Um, say if tomorrow we were to have a domestic carbon tax in the United States, um, some companies might have incentives to just move to another jurisdiction with more relaxed environmental rules or without a carbon tax. They want to, you know, avoid paying for the tax and then produce emissions somewhere else. We um, call that leakage, right? We call that yes. leakage, right? Yes, exactly, Kyle. Um, we would call that carbon leakage. And so that that actually defeats the purpose of the, the policy and also for economic and competitive reasons, we don't want that to be, be happening. Um, so we would put in place a carbon border adjustment to really level the playing field between domestic producers and foreign producers. So um, with a border adjusted carbon tax, companies would be indifferent to where to locate their um, facilities. As long as they're selling to U.S. consumers, they would be uh, required to pay for the tax if they're whether that's imported or sold locally. Um, so that's basically why the, the economic reasons and on also environmental reasons. Um, in terms of how um, I could talk about this for a long time, how to do a <laughs> carbon border adjustment, it's really um, a pretty complicated issue. Um, if you if you think about it, um, it's relatively easy to implement a domestic carbon tax. You could levy the the tax upstream mm -hmm. where oil, gas, um, or or coal is extracted out of the ground. Um, so then 
prices get passed on to the the lower parts of the supply right. chain to the intermediate producers or or um, consumers. Um, but when you try to border adjust a carbon tax, it gets complicated very quickly um, because we're, we're talking about specific products flowing across borders. So we need to talk about um, the emissions associated with a specific product coming in and going out. How are you calculating the, the, the carbon emissions? How are you calculating the import tax liabilities or the ex uh, rebate uh, amount, um, how do you validate emissions, um, what, what is a good way to really track all the information. Um, so I have, I'm happy to discuss more about this. So basically I talk about, you know, what is the border adjustment, why we need to do it, and how, how to do it. So, so I think it's safe to kind of sum that a bit in saying that while the uh, mechanism itself isn't novel, um, we know how to do that. Countries know how to do that. It's the application itself of how it's being applied to what it's being applied that's novel and that makes it hard uh, in, in this respect. Yes, exactly. Um, so let, let's go back to the example of a value added tax. Um, so a VAT is essentially a sales tax collected through different stages of, of a supply chain. So different producers along the supply chain would need to pay the VAT minus um, the VAT liability the previous producer along the supply chain has paid. Um, so it's kind of an additive uh, concept. Um, with VAT, it's easy because you only need to look at the sales price of a product you times the VAT rate you get your tax liability. Um, I think uh, everyone knows why it's very complicated. Right. I can't just look at a coffee mug or a laptop and say there are these many, uh, this amount of carbon oh, emissions associated right. with the product. Um, so I think that gets complicated very quickly. Okay. No, I think that's a helpful helpful baseline. So given given that context you know i think many of our volunteers and and viewers that are listening are familiar with or have heard that the eu is planning to implement a carbon border adjustment on some key carbon intensive industries including steel iron aluminum and there are others um what risk does that I mean, we know from Dana's conversation earlier that United States manufacturers on average are relatively clean compared to lots of global peers. But in considering that, what risk does that possibility propose to United States industries? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think of it as, um, so obviously there's not a domestic carbon tax in the United States. Right. So, um, Putting aside the, the the relative greenhouse gas regulations, uh, state or local regulation, we don't price emissions directly in the United States. So if um, with these U.S. export companies selling those products to the EU across those industries, if they have not even thought about how to dec decarbonize their supply chains or even how to calculate their carbon footprint or measure the emissions um, with their specific product, I think um, that might pose a risk to them that they they might realize, oh, okay, we really need to start 
working on this now. Um, I would say um, the EU has the emissions trading scheme in place for more than a decade. So the companies, EU companies, they have been working on this for a long time. They, they, they know how to deal with um, the framework. They, they probably have, um, working on, have been working on calculating and measuring, validating the emissions for a long time. So I think that could be a potential risk for the US companies that um, have not started working on this or um, have not done a lot on this front. Um, so the with the EU CVM, they're thinking about um, putting in place a framework starting next year, 2023, but not really collecting any import tax until 2026. Now that's a, a temporary uh, timeline they're working with. Yeah. They might come up with a dated finalized timeline that could be um, implemented sooner. Um, so I. I would say that there's still time, a couple years, mm-hmm. perhaps, um, but um, that that could be a risk. That timeline gives them some opportunity to maybe start figuring out ways to comply or reduce their risk. Um, so, so I would ask, you know, as a follow-up, um, understanding that we're all on the same page here about the need for a carbon domestic carbon price if you're going to have a CBAM, uh, but kind of setting that aside to what extent we can. What opportunity does implementing a carbon border adjustment here in the United States provide domestic manufacturers both in the EU and and kind of globally? Yeah, so I I would say, as as you mentioned earlier, Kyle, um, the U.S. industries, especially across these sectors, are relatively much cleaner uh, compared to um, our trading partners. I published a, a report earlier this year looking at the biggest polluters around the world. in terms of total emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, so US is one of the biggest polluters uh, globally, but um, if you look at the average carbon intensity, um, it, it's it's quite low compared to like other countries like China or Russia um, or other oil and gas producing countries. So um, I would say in terms of that, the US companies are already, um, they, they have an advantage because they are using cleaner processes um, to produce their products. So that might result in a lower import tax uh, liability when they're trying to sell to the, their EU customers under those um, sectors like steel, iron, aluminum, compared to the US's uh, competitors. So um, I think that is something, something positive. In terms of implementing a CBAM in the US, what opportunity would that provide the domestic manufacturers? Um, I would like to take a quick step back. I, I always love to emphasize that you know, a CBAM mechanism, the goal of it is not really to favor um, domestic or foreign producers. We're not here to give anyone any advantages. We're treating both sides the same mm-hmm. level, leveling the playing field. Um, so I would say if we implement a carbon tax in the United States and border adjusted, um, that means we have a border adjusted carbon tax in the States, I think um, the U.S. would have advantage in terms of competing with um, 
our, our trading partners um, under the border adjusted carbon tax, um, the, the cleaner producers um, could be subject to a lower tax liability. So I, I think that could be an advantage. So in that scenario where the playing field has been leveled, then it's just down to what's your comparative advantage on how you manufacture things and, and those kinds of other factors with a level playing field. No, that's that's helpful, um, helpful input. And I would like to say for for the moment that um, there are a number of resources that Shooting's provided um, and that CCL has, and you can find links to those throughout the conversation in the chat. So take a look at those if uh, before or after this conversation, if you would like. Um, for our next question, um, we have, I think after our first two questions, we have a good baseline understanding of the policy and kind of the geopolitics of it at the moment. Considering the massive climate package that was just passed as a part of the Inflation Reduction Act, does that change um, the impact of the EU CBAM or a domestic CBAM in any way, in, in your opinion? Yeah, so I, I would answer this question um, in two, two aspects. One is the short-term impact, one is long-term impact. In terms of short-term impact, I would say it, it could be really, it might be really low. Um, so with the exist, existing EU CBAM proposal, um, they're only looking to partially or fully exempt the import tax if the uh, origin of country has a explicit carbon price in place. So we're talking about either a carbon tax or emissions trading system. So even though um, the United States um, massive tax breaks uh, mm -hmm. were included in the IRA um, um, bill, I don't think with the current design of the EU proposal, they're looking to um, rebate any any sure. of the the amount um, uh, producers in the U.S. have already um, sub been subject to. Right. Um, you could try to argue that um, you know there are regulations here mm -hmm. that would in increase the 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 cost for these companies, but I think um, the EU they're really looking to. Um, rebate the amount for for countries with an explicit carbon uh, carbon price, so a carbon tax or um, our emissions trading system. So the short-term impact, I would say, is quite low. In terms and, and of long-term, yeah, sorry. I might just, what you were saying there, if I understand it correctly, is essentially that it's really hard to harmonize a bunch of regulations and put a price on those that isn't already an explicit price and say that it matches an explicit carbon price or an emissions trading scheme. It just is too hard to do that or maybe uh, not very transparent. Yes, so um, exactly. Administratively, it, it would be a nightmare to do that. Administratively and conceptually, it doesn't make any sense to do mm -hmm. that. You're not, you're not putting a fee or price on emissions and um, regulations are not the same. And we have a patchwork of regulations covering different sectors, different levels. Um, even though uh, there is a carbon tax in the United States, um, based on my research, I don't recommend giving any rebates. Um, so if you, let's go back to the example of a VAT. Um, with the vast across 
all of the 150 countries, they don't do partial full rebate of a VAT based on say like a, a, a French person go, goes to Germany and mm -hmm. buy, buy like a box of chocolate. They don't calculate, oh, well, how much how much VAT has already been subjected in, in France and then let's uh, subtract that amount and rebate you. Um, the, the goal of a, a border adjustment is really to uh, level the playing field between domestic and foreign producers. And it's just administratively and, and uh, legally too complex to do that rebate. Um, if, if you do the rebate, it might risk violating the WTO non-discriminatory rules. So that's just too complicated. So okay. um, that is the short-term short impact. In terms of long-term, I would say um, the IRA could, well, it, it will definitely boost clean energy development in the United yeah. States. Um, I don't think we will feel the impact immediately because it takes time to uh, kick off all these clean energy development projects, really um, develop uh, these clean technologies and then make them um, become yeah. affordable to be applied at economies of scale. So maybe after, I don't know, five or six, seven, eight years, um, we have more uh, types of clean energy technologies available in the state, and then that would make our um, production processes Clean. even cleaner, and yep. that would result in an even lower uh, import tax liability uh, under okay. the EUC game. That's I, I think that context is uh, you know really helpful for our our volunteers and for our listeners that there are maybe some long term knock on effects from IRA that have to do with you know, the overall goals of emissions reduction um, and that making uh, manufacturing cleaner, but that it doesn't, you know, really help our domestic industries in the short term deal with uh, the problems they would face uh, with the carbon border adjustment mechanism in such a large trading partner like the EU. Um, so given all of the context that we just covered, and that's a lot, uh, how does Niskanen view the prospects of uh, for a carbon border adjustment mechanism in the next Congress, and thinking about a standalone as kind of a corollary, thinking about the possibility of a standalone uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism, does does it move the U.S. meaning meaningfully toward a carbon price? Yeah. So um, at the Niskanen Center, we believe that there could be some bipartisan interest in uh, a carbon border adjustment bill um, in the next Congress. We've seen some bipartisan interest mm -hmm. in this topic. I mean, um, so you see a couple carbon border adjustment bills have been introduced in a lot in the in the current Congress, and um, I, I think some Republican lawmakers have been discussing um, that have have mentioned that they're interested in in such a topic. My my concern is. Um, such passion or interest in carbon border adjustment, um, uh, the, the lawmakers are interested in them. They're not interested in carbon tax. They're only interested in a standalone carbon border adjustment. So if there is not a domestic carbon tax in the United States, 
if you introduce a quote-unquote carbon border adjustment, um, that is actually just import tariffs because you don't have export rebate and you don't have a domestic tax. You're just levying a fee or taxes, whatever you call it, on imported products. So that is that is just import tar tariffs. Um, Which is where we run into WTO problems. Yes, and um, we we we've all seen how um, ineffective uh, tariffs have been. They increase consumer prices, just keep escalating, uh, never stopping trade wars. Um, they're really hurting domestic consumers, and it's just really not helping achieve the intended goals. Um, I would also point out that um, if you look at globally, um, only one-fifth of the total emissions globally are embedded in international trade. And biggest polluters like the United States, China, Russia, Japan, Germany, and other countries, um, a majority of the production related emissions are for these countries' domestic consumption. So for example, um, only one fifth of China's total emissions are exported to the rest of the world. Um, all of the US's imports from China um, back in 2018 only accounted for 4% of China's total emissions. Okay. Um, so um, my point is there is really limited um, there are really limited things we can do with with our trading partners emissions. Most of the emissions occur domestically within borders and then are are for their domestic consumption. Um, so I think the US should really focus on very good domestic uh, climate policies yeah. and then um, to tack that along, try to address some of the emissions in embedded international trade. Um, rather than trying to um, lead with a standalone carbon border adjustment and use the the rhetoric of oh let's let's punish our dirtier trading partners um, because their emissions are dirtier. Right. Um, like I said, on, there's very limited about what we can do with um, our trading partners' emissions yeah. because most of them are for domestic consumption. And also, like you said, it would risk violating trade rules and just escalating trade wars. Um, so, my, so my concern is, is that. Yeah, so it sounds like you think it's an important step, an important tool, uh, a carbon border adjustment, because it, does, it can encourage um, some countries to move along and it can reduce emissions, you know, on the margins of 4%, 5% here and there, 4% being the number that you provided uh, for China to the US, um, but that it needs that pairing um, with the domestic price if we're gonna get really consequential emissions reductions uh, that we all agree are necessary. Um, I would ask kind of one follow-up question. Mm -hmm. um, is it right for you know our, our volunteers to understand essentially that um, in order to have some kind of carbon border adjustment mechanism, whatever, if, if, it try, if they try to pass a standalone mechanism that doesn't have an explicit price, they're going to have to find a way to actually put a value on the emissions to measure it. So they can <laughs> say that it's not a price, but 
they're going to have to find a way to say there's an economic value to those emissions. Is that, that, is that a correct understanding? Yeah, exactly. Um, without a domestic carbon price in the United States, the lawmakers, if they want to implement a standalone import tariffs, even though they, they would call it a border adjustment, they will have right. to basically justify or explain like, why are you um, putting, say, for example, $50 per ton on the emissions associated with imported products? Um, it would be really hard to justify that. <laughs> yes, I think we, we agree with that. Well, I have one more uh, question for you, um, and then I want to open it up to, to Q&A from the audience. Um, thank you again for your time today. It's obvious that uh, Niskanen and CCL share a lot of the same goals here related to the implementation of the border adjustment and carbon pricing. When you think about our strength, our, our grassroots uh, volunteers, the people that are listening on this call, how can they be most effective, do you think, when speaking to members of Congress and, and their staff about the need for a border adjustment mechanism? And what messages do you think might be most persuasive? Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great question. I, I would like to take the opportunity to, first of all, thank you, Kyle, and all the CCL's wonderful volunteers for the great work that you have been doing. It, it's very critical um, for, for thank you. Um, you know, pursuing meaningful and effective car, uh, climate policies in the state. Um, I would say when talking to uh, MOCs, um, it's, it's important to uh, emphasize that, yes, we just had a massive uh, uh, bill with a lot of tax breaks for clean energy, um, a lot of provisions uh, for, for clean uh, energy technologies. Mm -hmm. But it's very important to take a step back and think, are these enough, right? Relying on clean energy solely to um, solve climate change is not really an efficient or effective way um, to incentivize uh, decarbonization um, because clean energy subsidies, they're not pricing emissions directly. Um, the, for example, the EV credits, they don't do anything to existing combustion car owners. They won't yes. incentivize them to drive less even though um, some of the EV credits might convince some consumers to switch over yeah. to electric vehicles uh, because we don't have a domestic carbon tax, um, they might be consuming electricity generated by fossil fuels like coal or natural gas. So clean energy subsidies are not really pricing emissions directly and they're not efficient we're giving massive handout, government handouts um, to all these clean energy industries. Um, subsidized clean energy might be cheaper uh, in the long run, so it could lead to increased overall energy consumption. Um, so compared to other policies, say for example, a carbon tax is not really an efficient way to do it. Um, and some would say, well, how about a lot of the pending regulations? Um, regulations are also not a good way to incentivize decarbonization across the economy quickly. 
because they're vulnerable to administrative and durability legal challenges. Issues. Yes. Durability and issues. Just take forever. Exactly. Durability <laughs> issues. Um, we need a durable uh, policy uh, like a carbon tax that would have bipartisan support and would provide stable long-run incentives for companies um, to know the price signal. Okay, emissions are priced this way. I need to make long-term investment decisions. Um, so I think it's it might be helpful to compare a carbon tax with um, clean energy subsidies and the regulations and just emphasize the importance of the carbon tax and then talk about, okay, when, when we're thinking about carbon tax, don't forget about the water adjustment, let's have a water adjusted carbon tax um, to really make sure uh, both domestic and foreign producers are com competing on the same, same ground. Well, um, I know that the folks that are listening have been hearing all day about how you know CCL is approaching um, kind of this this next Congress with our new policy platform, and a lot of what you just said is is really well aligned with that. I think a big focus for us is thinking about, you know, while of course we're excited about the tremendous investments in clean energy and the opportunities that that will provide from IRA, uh, that by itself it, it's just not enough to get us where we need to be on emissions reduction. And that is what this entire policy platform that we've been speaking with our volunteers about today is designed to do, is to achieve the goals that we all have um, by working with what's there from the IRA and passing policies that work well um, in tandem with those subsidies to make sure that we're getting where we need to be um, on the emissions reductions, uh, emissions reduction side. So um, thank you for that. I know it was helpful for our volunteers. And I think we're going to jump into Q&A. I think we have about 10 minutes. Uh, is that right, Keston? Yes, that's right. We have a little over 10 minutes for Q&A. Thank you both Kyle and Xu Ting. And we're going to start off, um, we're seeing some interest in the chat around the context of CBAM policy focusing on energy intensive trade exposed industries, rather than uh, also addressing the carbon content of individual products. So could you speak a little bit more to how to address the impact of these types of goods that aren't covered. And there's also a specific question in the chat asking about the feasibility of international collaboration to start addressing this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I would say that's correct. Most of the existing uh, CBAM proposals, whether uh, introduced in the European Union or the United States, uh, typically, or even in the carbon tax bills introduced, uh, across the past few years. A border adjustment section typically would just pick a few carbon intensive industries like aluminum, uh, steel, iron, uh, chemistry or fertilizer. Um, I would say it, it's okay to start with a few carbon intensive industries, but uh, eventually we would like to have a broad-based carbon border adjustment. Um, if you think about it, a lot of products are made out of aluminum, made out of steel or iron. If you look at a car, it consists of a lot of carbon intensive primary goods. So it doesn't make sense to just border adjust the primary good or the raw materials without also border adjusting the final goods that would create very distorted uh, incentives for companies to try to 
work around and relocate their facilities and try to maximize um, taking advantage of the mechanism. They could, um, you know, shift their final assembly facilities overseas to get the export rebate uh, when it's coming in, but um, uh, dodge the, the import tax um, when they're like um, importing the, the final goods from overseas. So um, over time, we would like to see uh, a broad-based um, carbon border adjustment. I would say that um, the only proposal I've seen so far that would cover both primary goods and final goods is Senator Whitehouse's uh, carbon border adjustment bill, the Clean Competition Act, introduced in June this year. So with the import tax, um, I think it, it would start with a few carbon intensive industries and then after a few years, it would expand to um, a, more down the supply chain. So it include more finished goods. Um, I don't remember the bill mentioning anything about expanding to finished goods in the export rebate part, but I think that's the only um, proposal I've seen so far that is trying to do a standardized border adjustment. And in terms of international cooperation on carbon border adjustment, I would say um, emissions measuring, validating, and reporting is a big area that needs international uh, collaboration. Uh, the EU-US uh, steel and aluminum trade deal um, that was uh, passed last year, some, sometime last year. Um, so that could be an important um, way for both sides to really collaborate um, on emissions reporting, starting from the most carbon intensive sectors like steel and aluminum. Yeah, and I would just quickly add that um, I think we see a little bit of that on the international trade side with um, talk about a carbon club amongst the G7 and some other folks like that that are starting to fear or see the possible impacts of the EU CBAM. Um, and then I, I think over time, you know, the, the plan for the EU, it seems, is to slowly add different categories uh, beyond the original seven that are proposed. So you will start to see it affect uh, in the long term uh, more and more industrial sectors, we'll say. Um, but uh, I think we have time for a couple more questions, so I'll stop. We do. So thank you both. Um, Shooting, you've spoken about the importance of having a domestic price paired with the CBAM. Can you speak just a little bit more to the WTO rules in play here? And do you have any suggestions for how CCL volunteers can discuss this issue within the U.S. political landscape where we have certain members of Congress that are proposing CBAM policies that don't include a domestic price? That's a great question. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think um, I, I don't try to be an expert in WTO laws. It's very complicated, but I think uh, one key point we can all remember is uh, non-discrimination with the WTO rules. Um, you can't use environmental protection or fighting climate change as an excuse to discriminate against different trading partners under the WTO. So when we um, have a border adjusted carbon tax, you need to really treat domestic and foreign producers the same way. And then you need to um, have equal treatment across all foreign trading partners. 
So I think that's a very important point uh, to remember. In terms of talking about um, uh, a border adjustment as a standalone policy without a carbon tax in the United States, um, I, I think it's, it's helpful to think about um, going back to my initial discussion is why we are having a border adjustment. Um, if there's not a domestic carbon tax or carbon price in the United States, it just doesn't make sense to put in place such a mechanism. I mean, what are you trying to border adjust um, at the borders? Um, so I think it's, it's, it's critical to emphasize um, a border adjustment is not a punitive measure. It's not uh, a retaliation measure. It, we're not trying to punish any trading partners. We're not trying to retaliate against anything. It, it, it's a good tax policy that could go with a domestic carbon tax um, that would um, treat the emissions in international trade in a fair, in a, in a good way. Um, so I think those could be helpful when you were talking about uh, a standalone carbon border adjustment. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's about, um, you know, having a level playing field for competition. Um, that's an important kind of way to look for, to have members look at it. And, and I would just kind of say one thing to our volunteers about talking about the WTO with members of Congress. WTO is not always the most popular political entity. Uh, so, you know, maybe I uh, don't need to be talking explicitly about the WTO uh, uh, too much and more focus on, um, you know, fair competition and emissions reduction um, for U.S. industry and globally. Okay, thank you. We have uh, just over three minutes left, so I think we can probably get to two more questions. Um, we have a question. Are there any other mechanisms in, that exist that are geared towards addressing the leakage of um, energy intensive trade exposed goods? And along with that, are there any analyses that compare these potentially similar types of policies? Yeah, I think that's a great question as well. So um, the EU ETS, the emissions trading scheme, they have been using something called free allowances for many, many years. So under the emissions trading scheme, um, companies across different industries, they need to purchase these emission certificates to um, generate emissions. But to protect their domestic carbon intensive industries competitiveness, they give out free allowances to those industries, um, meaning they can uh, emit for free. They don't have to pay, pay for the certificate. Um, but the EU CBM proposal, they're looking to um, replace or phase out the free allowances by um, the over the next decade or so, and then put in place a carbon border adjustment. Um, because a carbon border adjustment is a better policy than free allowances in addressing carbon leakage. Um, for, for the reason I discussed earlier, it, it would um, level the playing field, um, uh, it's taxing consumption, so it would give uh, incentives to companies to not relocate their uh, facilities overseas. Um, it also raises revenue, um, so carbon border adjustment is definitely a better policy.
policy than freelancers in addressing leakage. Okay, and we've got just about one minute left, so we'll sort of do like a rapid fire answer to our currently most upvoted question, which is, is there any possibility for the US to rely on the EU's emission formulas and their policy for crafting our own? That's, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, let me think about it. I think, um, so what I've learned so far is with the implementation of the EU CBAM, they would um, try to assign a third party uh, uh, to work on validating the emissions and reporting them. And then when you submit the emission certificate to the CBAM authority in the EU, they would uh, have a third party to validate it. Um, so I think this is a big area for international collaboration. Um, if we use standardized um, processes to uh, calculate emissions and report them, um, we would not have this problem. But I, I do realize it's, it's a challenging uh, area and it will take time to reach there. Yeah, my really quick answer is, you know, they talk about harmonizing uh, carbon intensity and emissions calculations at COP and these kinds of things all the time. Um, you know, I think Article 6 of the Paris Agreement is supposed to deal with some of this, and it's just really complicated and we're not there yet. So um, that's that's the short answer. I don't think we're there yet, but hopefully someday uh, we can have some kind of you know agreement on on how to measure those things. Um, but Keston, I'm, I think we're out of time, so I will close it out. Uh, Shooting, I want to thank you again um, for making the time today. I know um, we didn't get to everybody's questions, and I'm sorry that we that we couldn't. Um, but thank you all so much for listening in and for your terrific questions. Uh, I know that uh, you challenged Shooting and I with a couple of those, and so we're happy to have done our best uh, with those answers. And, and thank you again, Shooting, uh, on behalf of our volunteers in CCL. Of course, thank you very much for having me. Yep. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.